The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is One on One with Mitch LaFond, the podcast where the rockers talk, part of the Talking Metal Digital Podcasting Network. Now, here's your host, Mitch LaFond. Mr. Fawn and joining me on this episode, it is Bad Company drummer Simon Kirk. We talk about his new album, All Because of You. And uh, if this sounds somewhat familiar, it is because we did this about four to five weeks ago for a part one. We talked about the album, Bad Company, Free, and all kinds of wonderful, wonderful stuff. And it was so good, we decided to do it again. Uh, but this time we dig a little deeper, and uh, we look at specific albums in his Free and Bad Company uh, catalog, and we just get into the nitty-gritty. And, of course, we do talk about the new album, All Because of You. And there you go. Enough of me for now. Uh, you want to see more of me, head over to Twitter, at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. And with that, here is the one, the only, drummer extraordinaire from Bad Company, Simon Kirk. We are speaking with Bad Company drummer Simon Kirk, who's got a new solo album called All Because of You. Simon, uh, a pleasure to speak with you again, I should say, in this case. <laughs> Thank you, Mitch. Yeah, it's, it's nice to uh, speak with you again. Yes. So we, we covered a lot of miles on the last, uh, last interview, and it's not very often that we get uh, two kicks at the can, but here we are. Hmm. So let, let's talk quickly about All Because of You. Um, Last mm. time you told me about how uh, you came about making feels like making love on the ukulele mm. and stuff. Yeah. Uh, what else can you sort of tell me about the album and and wanting to put it together? Well, as I said um, earlier, you know, I went through a rather. Uh, I was coming to the end of my marriage, and I had a, a new girlfriend, uh, Maria, and. Um, most of the, or a lot of the songs on All Because of You were written with her in mind. She was the, the muse uh, for a lot of the songs. And uh, one of the first songs that I wrote, and by the way, I had no idea I was going to be making a CD uh, last, uh, last year. And I had started putting these songs uh, down um, around the beginning of 015 i started writing them and you know love being the uh the most uh, fruitful of muses um i wrote several songs quite quickly the first one was was maria which i wrote on on guitar uh with a drop d tuning uh, which uh, you know guitarists will will recognize as being a very simple uh alteration to the regular tuning of a guitar and it gives a lovely drone, droning sort of sound. And I wrote Maria very quickly. Um, and I followed that with, um, lie with you. I wrote that on, I had a little piano in my apartment down in Miami. And those two songs came very quickly. I, I was, you know, I don't want to get all highfalutin and, um, you know, uh, out of the box sort of thing, but uh, there was a certain uh, element of, um, I don't know, uh, inspiration, really, where the songs came very quickly. And I might have said earlier that some songs take 20 minutes, some songs take months, and those two came very quickly. Uh, in fact, in order to, um, to really get into Maria's good books, 
I recorded uh, Live With You on a little studio in Miami Beach um, and sent her the results. And I'd only been uh, uh, communicating with her for what, a couple of months. And I thought, well, if I can get her this song, maybe, you know, she'll really like me. <laughs> and it seemed to work because we're getting married later in the year. And, of course, I'm, so, I'm assuming, is that where the title comes from? So it's all because of you, yeah. Maria, I wrote this album? Is that... Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and also, in, in I guess in brackets or in parentheses, there were a couple of people along the way um, who believed in my ability to, to write songs. And it, although most of the the uh, the title refers to Maria, um, there's this slight tip of the hat to uh, you know the people who encouraged me to write. Because, you know, I, growing up with uh, in free and bad company, uh, you know, being the drummer, um, songwriting has never really come easy to me. And, and I guess in 45 years, I've written maybe, maybe 50 songs, which is really what a song a year. And it's not really a question of being very prolific. Um, I like to think that a lot of the songs are, are pretty good. I guess I'm, I'm sort of in, in the George Harrison school of writing where he wrote very, very seldom, but the songs that he wrote, were really rather good. Um, it's not for me to say if they're, they're good or bad, but uh, I'm very happy with with the results. Uh, but I'm now, as my star starts to sink a little in the West when it comes to drumming and performing, um, I'm really getting into songwriting in a, in a major way. And in fact, I'm actually going down next week uh, in February to write with uh, Gary Burr, who's one of the, the top songwriters in Nashville and a personal friend, uh, but to be included in, in his company and I'm meeting other songwriters down there to be included uh, is, is a very, is a big boost for me um, because only a few years ago, I, I didn't really uh, rate my songs as being, particularly good you know i've got that english trait where i'm very modest i'm not very pushy and it's just the way i am uh it took other people to say wow you know your songs are really pretty good man and um and to be included in the nashville circle of songwriters is is a huge uh boost for for my confidence do you see yourself writing for other artists or are these songs that you want to bring to hopefully a bad company album or maybe a follow-up solo album? Mm -hmm. Well, there will be... All right, first things first. I would love it if people covered my songs. I, I would be very uh, honored and very happy if they did. Um, as I said, I've, I've only entered this arena uh, recently um, and signing with BMG, uh, they they have a roster of artists. They will put my songs out to be uh, listened to and hopefully covered. So yeah, I mean, I'll write for anyone who, if anyone wants to cover my songs, yes, please, I'd love that. As regards a Bad Company album, I don't really know, uh, Mitch. Quite honestly, uh, it's that decision 
rests pretty much with Paul. And I don't think he's particularly keen right now to go into the studio. I am. I, you know, I love recording and I think the band sounds as strong as it ever did. Uh, of course, without Mick, uh, that, that dealt off quite a, a severe blow last year when Mick Ralph had his stroke. So that really uh, hampered any progress that we might have shown uh, regards going into the studio. So I don't know. A, a Bad Company studio album is looking a little less likely than it did a few months ago. Yeah, and even less likely than, yeah. than, than the last time we spoke. Um, last time yeah. we spoke, we talked about mm. uh, what you did uh, during 9-11 and how you mm. went out to the Red Cross and helped. Um, there's another... Mm organization that you work with called Road Recovery, and you're on the board of directors. First of all, if you could explain to the folks listening what exactly that is, and then follow that up with why Mm. are you involved, why do you feel it's important? I mean, I can sort of see why it's important, because, but let let the folks know what it is and and your involvement in that. Well, Road Recovery is... um a small organization in New York City uh, put together by two guys, Gene Bowens, G-E-N-E, Bowens, B-O-W-E-N-S, and Jack Bookbinder. Uh, And it helps, primarily it helps young people who come uh, to overcome or help with addiction, depression, and, and, you know, all the attendant troubles that youngsters go through nowadays. and it's been it's, it's coming up on 20 years. And the reason it's called Road Recovery is that Gene is an avid cyclist. And when he started the organization, he used to pedal all over the three the tri-state area um, to drum up uh, funds and, and contributions to get the thing started. So he called it Road Recovery. So it, you know it helps youngsters. And 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 I've seen kids as young as 15 in the rooms. Uh, and and people in their thirties, uh, but primarily it helps young kids. I uh, I help because you know I've had my struggles with uh, substance abuse over the years. I'm not telling out of school. I mean this is uh, this is it's quite well known in in interviews that I've given over the years that I had my uh, my troubles with substance abuse. Um, I'm a lot older and wiser now, but addiction is always hovering over me. So it helps me to help, you know, youngsters. And and I, being a father and now a grandfather, of course, I, I, um, if I can help youngsters avoid the the uh, the pitfalls that I went through, uh, then then that's fantastic. I I, I wish that I'd had uh, I had known. Um, an organization like that when I was in my late teens or early twenties. Uh, so it helps me to help them. Yeah. And there's also the, they're, they're running a hashtag that uh, folks can check out, which is don't give up. Uh, and yeah. maybe we, you can explain that, but I see that slash is involved. Peter Frampton's involved. Peter Frampton. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, Kirk Hammett from Metallica. Metallica. We had the, uh, and Duran Duran. Uh, John the, and the Roger Taylor. Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Frank I mean, Bellow I mean, of Anthrax. There's, there's just a lot of people yeah. involved in this. So, what is "Don't Give Up"? "Don't Give Up" is literally what it says. Right. It, it says, you know, you're not alone. Don't, don't give up because peer pressure 
especially at that young age, that uh, formative age is so strong to have a joint, have a drink, have a pill. Uh, you know, we we all know that opioid or, or opiate abuse is sky high, particularly in the Northeast, um, you know, which encompasses our state all the way up to uh, Canada and over to to Ohio. I mean, it's for some reason, the Northeast is just rampant with opiate abuse. Um, don't give up, you know, pick up a phone and call us uh, or call any helpline. I mean, one thing about addiction uh, nowadays in the 21st century, it doesn't carry the stigma that it carried 30 or 40 years ago. If you're an addict, it's one thing. If you're an addict in recovery, then, you know, it's it's a marvelous thing that you've reached out. So I, I, I don't know who came up with the hashtag last year. But don't give up. And it's it's pretty simple. Just pick up the phone or go online and reach out and we'll be there to help. Yeah, and, and, and it's great to see all these artists from all these different genres and age groups uh, pitching in mm. for the kids because that's, that's, you know, mm. that's, that's inspiring. Well, we do. You know, we carry a responsibility, whether we like it or not. I looked up to people when I was growing up. Um, and and we do now. We're in that position. You know, Peter and and myself and and John and Roger. You know, we're all in our fifties and sixties, and 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 kids look up to us. And you know, who knows? Maybe we or I, speaking for myself, maybe I inadvertently contributed to to kids. You know, picking up. I don't know. I have to think about that because when I was rampant in my twenties and thirties. You know, I although I never crowed about drinking and drugging, it's not the sort of thing that people that we do. We crow about being sober because we're proud of it, uh, but we don't crow about you know our crazy days. I I talk about my crazy days with with an element of regret, but that's just part of the rock and roll lifestyle. I, luckily, I came out the other side, um, but. Uh, it's not for me to say if, if the people that we just mentioned are in the program or not. I, quite honestly, I don't know. But the fact that they're willing to donate their time and energy to uh, to help kids who are in trouble, uh, it's, it's a marvelous thing. And um, it helps me keep my addiction in check. Yeah, it, re- it really is a marvelous thing. And, and it's just nice to see an artist like yourself that doesn't have all kinds of you know, look at me, I'm the guy in back. Just a normal human being with human decency helping out. It's just, it's just, it's just nice to see that we haven't lost mm. all hope yet. So, so, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, you look at some of the young rappers today and you see some of their speeches and, you know, I'm going to bang, bang this and money, mm. money, bling. And you go, really, mm. really? That, yeah. that's, that's, that's the best you've got? Really? So... You know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, well, look, it's just youth, and it's just newfound wealth and fame, and it will go to our heads. It's just a natural reaction. It'll go to some guys' heads deeper than others. Uh, you know, there are some assholes out there. There's some great guys out there. New, uh, you know, the new up-and-comers, they'll learn. It's just a natural cycle that they have to go through. Uh, hopefully, with the right guidance, with the right lawyer, with the right manager, they won't lose it all, or they won't put it up their nose or stick it down their throat. Uh, and that's where people like myself, uh, who've been through the mill, 
we can say, hey, listen, you're going to get a million dollar advance. That's great. But listen, you're going to give half of that to the government. You're going to give another 10% to your manager. You're going to do this and that. You're going to be left with about 150 grand net. So don't go crazy, you know. If I'd have had that sort of advice 40 years ago, my God, uh, things would have been a lot different. But, uh, you know, there's a lot more knowledge. There's a lot more awareness about the pitfalls of, of this business than there ever was. So there's really no excuse now. No, I agree. I agree. Mm. Um, speaking about 40 years ago, last time we didn't mm. get the chance to to, norm, to to really talk about all the different albums, but I do want to go, go back. Go ahead. I've got plenty of time. Yeah, I want to go back to the first one, Bad Company, mm. Bad Company, uh, released mm. in 1974. Mm. One of the remarkable things is that it went to number one on the Billboard mm. uh, charts. Um, mm. Talk to me a little bit about going into that because it, it was sort of called a, a super group. And, you know, what were mm. some of the pressures? And were you surprised that it went up to number one? Wow. Well, first things first, yes, we were given that super group tag. Right. You know, we were in the era of um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Blind Faith. About a few years before that, um, bands were breaking up and reforming from other bands. And, and I guess it was easy for record companies and their publicity departments to say, hey, you know, we've got uh, a supergroup here because it gets you press. Uh, coupled with the fact that we were the first band on Led Zeppelin's label, uh, you know, to be in, uh, associated with Led Zeppelin in the early 70s was a huge uh, leg up. Um, so, you know, we were saddled with the supergroup tag, didn't like it, but there's nothing we could do about it. All that we could do, and, and what we had going for us, Mitch, was that we had been around. You know, me and Paul Rogers came from Free, Mick came from Mott the Hoople, Bos Burrell came from King Crimson, and those three bands were well-known, were very well-loved, particularly in England. Uh, and we were sort of seasoned veterans of three or four years. So we could, it wasn't that we, that we were saddled with a, a title that we couldn't really live up to. I mean, we were a little nervous because, you know... What do they say? Be careful what you wish for. Um, and we did. We wanted to be a, a big band. We wanted to, to have a good manager. Um, and, um, you know, you could check both those, box, those boxes. We, we got what we wished for. But we could follow it up. Um, were we surprised about number one album? Oh, my Lord. Well, look, I'll tell you a quick story. In the days before the internet and cell phones, we really had no idea about the progress of Bad Co, you know, the first album is called Bad Co, how it was doing. And we were just intent on traveling the country, supporting people like Edgar Winter, uh, you know, opening opening the, uh, the show for, for various groups all over the country. And when we got to Boston on the last date of, a, it was around about a three-month tour, we really had no idea where the album was. And I remember Peter Grant, our manager, he flew out and uh, he met us at the, the, the venue in Boston. And it was great to see him. You know, he was such a, a, a boost uh, for our morale and just the fact that he would come out. 
and, and be with us on the last gig. So we were all in the dressing room, and um, he said, oh, go, you know, boys, before you go out, you know, I've got something to show you. And, you know, so he sort of went out into the room next door to the dressing room, and we followed him, and there on, on a table was a big sheet, and he gave us a little pep talk, and just then they put the lights down, you know, summoning us to the stage, and of course the place went nuts, you could hear the roar, and we were going, you know, fucking hell, Peter, come on, we got to go. He said, all right, they'll wait, they'll wait. I want to thank you for all the hard work. And he whipped back this sheet and there were four gold albums. And he said, I believe this week you're number one boy. So congratulations. And he gave us all a hug and we just floated out onto that stage and gave one of the performances of our lives. Um, yeah, we were number one. It was the most amazing feeling. Was hmm. the band when you, when you started it and, and went to make that first album, was it, with the plan that we're going to do this for the next 10 years, or was it the plan we're going to do, mm -hmm. you know, 10 songs and then go home and back to free and like sort of what was the game plan? No, there was no real plan like that. And it's funny that that's, it's not, it's not very often I get questions like that, but you know, we were all in our early twenties and I think we were trying, I know I was trying to shake off, uh, the Ghosts of Free, which had been the last couple of years have been a real um, albatross around, you know, around my neck in particular, uh, with Paul Kossoff and the drugs and the breakups and the reformations and all. But it was we just wanted to get on with playing music, uh, traveling the world, and and I, there was not a game plan as such. I I knew that. Once we hooked up with Peter Grant and Led Zeppelin's one song, we had a few good years in front of us. Um, but we never sat down and said, you know, in three years we'll do this and in five years we'll be here. No, no, we just really followed our noses for, um, you know, from one album to the, to the next. Did it going to number one, though, affect any... Let's say the album had not even been in the top 200, had just sort of happened and disappeared. Do you think it would have changed the course of things or you still would have gone, all right, we're still going to do straight shooter. We're still going to, I mean, did, did this immediate success sort of go, Oh, okay. Well, I tell you what, I tell you this, Mitch, that we found a, a new found freedom, if you want, within the, the confines of bad company, you know, Paul Rogers and myself, um, had found a, a kindred spirit in Nick Ralph's. He had left at Montmartre because he was fed up with, uh, with with how he's, you know, just fed up with the way the band was progressing. Boz Burrell uh, was in and out of King Crimson before he even realized it because they had a bit of a, uh, a revolving door of musicians. It, it wasn't a, a group that really hung around for long uh, without changing musicians. So... But we found a, a, a four kindred spirits uh, in this in the music that we all wanted to play. So had the first album sunk without a trace, I don't think that would have been the end of the band. I think we would have gone, well, screw that. We'll make another one. And maybe this one will work. And, and as it turned out, you know, Straight Shooter uh, was a wonderful album. Uh, there were some great songs. Uh, my, it's my favorite of, of all the albums, quite honestly. 
Uh, well, in fact, that's what I was going to ask you, because it's got some of the biggest hits, right? I mean, my Mm. personal favorite song has always been Shooting Star, and there it is. Feel Like Making Love, you just covered it on All Because of You. Obviously, it's got... uh, When when did this one come out? It came out in uh, 75, so you're looking at uh, 42 years of legs. I mean, that's that's pretty Mm -hmm. impressive for a song that 42 years later, you're still uh, reveling in it and covering it and, and... yeah. It is one of the greatest albums, right? I mean, it's yeah. Well, I think so, and I think also the, the thing that differentiates it from the first album was that the first album was the, the you know the um, the combination of a perfect storm. You know, you had three well-known, you had musicians from three well-known bands, Supergroup, if you will, uh, coupled with the Zeppelin, Swan Song, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It couldn't really not fail. But Straight Shooter, you know, was bad company after one year. You know, could we duplicate the success of that first album on our own merit? And the answer was a resounding yes, we could and we did. And you had those two songs that you mentioned, Feel Like Making Love, uh, Shooting Star, Good Loving Gone Bad. You had my song, Weep No More. Um, It was just a a well-rounded uh, you know, we have arrived sort of uh, album. And uh, it's, it's as I said, it's my, I think my favorite album of all of the Bad Company albums. Yeah, it, it just really stands up. There's no sophomore jinx on it. It's it just a very cohesive, hmm. um, you know, with the success of the first two albums, obviously the band grows and, and you're on your way. Hmm. Um, was it, what was the sort of the feeling in terms of, were you just simply elated that now you left free and you made, cause I'm sure everybody were, when you left free, they were going to say, well, you're going to fail. It's not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. You, you're not going to have another all right now. And that uh, you did it. And I think you might've even well, done it bigger. I, I think we did do it bigger because we well, were still around. Free was only around for five years. And, and two of those years were very tortuous. Uh, you know, the house in the golden days, Halcyon days of three were no more than 24 months uh, at, at best. You know, and, and a quick sidebar, you know, the Beatles, they were only around for eight years. And, and uh, they only really hit their stride in 1965 to 1966 in terms of recording. You know, if you, if you want to look at the Beatles in terms of recording and touring, maybe three, four years at a stretch. That was it for them. But look what they achieved. So, you know, three, yeah, we had two very, very good years. So we, there was really no comparison with Bad Company for, 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 in my mind, that when Bad Company hit its stride in 1975, we were off and running. And, and um, I thought that we were going to be around for, there was no time frame for me back in those days. Maybe it was the arrogance of youth. I don't know. I, I never thought, oh, God, you know, we would be here for four or five years. There was no, there was no time frame for me. Um, we just played it literally by ear. And as the, the years rolled by, you know, wow, okay, we're still here. But, and, you know, I, I know you're probably leading up with other questions, so I won't go into that area right now, but... Uh, you know, no, 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 no. Feel, feel, feel free to go with it. Well, I, I've got other around around 1977. Mm-hmm. We started to feel the pace because we went off at a hell of a pace. 
we were like greyhounds, sort of let out of the, uh, you know, those traps, you know, when the hare comes around the circuit. And we were, boom, we were like, you know, four lightning bolts. But after about four years of the amazing pace, you know, three-month-long tours, 100 cities and album after album after album, you know, it started to catch up with us. And really by 1978, we were, we were beginning, beginning to feel it. And, and, of course, the band just goes on. But um, let's see. I do want to go over here for a second to Two Free mm. with the album Fire mm. and Water. Yeah. Um, it has the song All Right Now on it, which mm. is as big of a rock song as you're going to get. I mean, it, it's it's easily yeah, in the top is. 20 of all rock songs, uh, probably right up there with Feel Like Making Love. Mm. Um, talk to me a little bit about that album and that song, and, and why has that song just sort of crossed musical yeah. borders and just become so special to everybody? Mm. I know. kind of defies... Well, first things first, um, Fire and Water was Free's third album. And I'm particularly over here, think it was our first album. Well, it wasn't. Tons of Sobs was the first, and then Free, uh, the self-titled album, was the second. So when we, when we started recording uh, Fire and Water, we'd been around, I believe, about 18 months. Um, and there was no real expectations uh, other than we were trying to build on our reputation. We weren't trying to write a hit song or write a hit album. Paul Rogers and Andy Fraser, who were the main songwriters, had compiled a, you know, a bunch of songs, and they were, they were pretty damn good. Um, but they had this mid-tempo loping beat. It wasn't a particularly danceable beat, and it was something... You know, we prided ourselves on being a, a, a progressive blues band. We, our music was blues-based, and it was primarily for listening to and, you know, um, having a pint or having a joint, sitting down and listening to it, and la, la, la. But it kind of, it didn't lend itself, the songs didn't really lend itself to dancing. Um, we had a few songs, don't get me wrong. I mean, we, we, we did blue shuffles and we did a couple of up-tempo songs but nothing that was really uplifting or joyful and I remember at the end of one particular show in the north of England we we didn't go down very well and we had to walk through the crowd from the stage back to our dressing rooms and the, the applause had died down before we even left the stage so it was a very long walk back to the dressing rooms and and I remember as if it was only a couple of months ago, we, we, we sort of got him to arrive at the dressing room quite despondent. And, and the, the, either Paul or Randy said, you know, we need a song that people can dance to. I don't know what happened, but in, in the next 10 or 15 minutes, Andy Fraser was bopping around the, uh, the dressing room, you know, saying, yeah, we need something like All Right Now. It's All Right Now, baby, baby. And and I know there's there's a difference of opinion as to when and where All Right Now was born. But I have never forgotten that moment, nearly 50 years later. Um, and, and I truly believe that All Right Now was born in that dressing room um, in 1969, I think, spring of 69. So anyway, Andy and Paul went and, and, and wrote the song. And over the next, 
couple of months, I guess, we rehearsed it, and, and I knew straight away it was quite special. Uh, it was so different from anything that Free had ever done. Um, and I believe it was one of the last tracks that we recorded on Fire and Water. And we did it, I believe it took about 24 takes with stops and full starts and breakdowns in the middle, et cetera, et cetera. And if memory serves me, I believe we took the fifth or sixth take. And it went on forever. It was like five and a half minutes. Uh, but it was so such a joy to, to play this particular rhythm, this tempo, that um, as soon as we finished one take, we said, well, let's do another one. And anyway, I guess two or three hours into the session, we, had, we sat down and, and um, we were kind of tired and we were in, in the studio in Basing Street in Island Records. And the engineer said, you know, this is this is a special track. We've got to get Chris Blackwell, who was our manager and, and the head of the record company, to listen to this. Uh, and Chris actually had an apartment in the studio, and he was staying there. This was about two in the morning uh, when we uh, said he's got to hear this. And uh, I think Paul Rogers said, well, let's get him out of bed. And we thought, oh, fuck, we can't do it. But we did. We called him up. And he said, you've got to come to the studio. And the only, it only meant him coming down some stairs, you know, to the studio. You've got to hear this song. So he came in. We played him the, the full-length chunk, about five and a half minutes. And at the end of the final chord, as it died away, he looked at us and he said, it's a hit. And I'll never forget that moment. And we all went, yeah, it's a hit. And then he said, but it's too long. Oh, shit, really? So in those days, to get on top of the Pops, which was the, the only BBC only matter, Pop show. Right? Well, it, it, it has to be under three minutes. Yep. They will not play anything that was over three minutes. Now, this is a five and a half minute song, so you've got to lose two and a half minutes. And he said, I think we can do it. And of course, we went, no, 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 no. You can't take 50% of the song out. He said, let, let me have a go. And, and Chris was a very good engineer in his own right. And back in those days, they cut tape with a razor blade and they fell it together. It wasn't like you do now on Pro Tools. So he said, I want you to leave the studio because no one could listen to this tape being mauled and hacked and <laughs> spliced. He said, I want you to go out, get a cup of coffee, come back in half an hour. And I'll, you know, we'll have a, a rough uh, cut for you. And we did. We came back. And the the edit is not very good. You can hear it as plain as day. It's a, it's not very good. But it worked. And it was just under three minutes. Top of the Pops. We sent a copy to Top of the Pops the next week. They released it. They aired it on their show. And within two weeks, it was number four. And it never got to number one. We were beaten by Mungo Jerry. In the summertime. <laughs> That's kind of funny. But, you know, here we are. It's, it's whatever, 40-some years later. 50, and yeah, nearly, nearly 50 years nearly later. 50 years later. That's, that's right. And I think the thing about it, Mitch, is it, it's happy. It's a happy song. Um, and happiness, happiness just transcends generations. It doesn't really matter if it's, uh, you know, uh, it was recorded on tapes. Oh, Django Reinhardt, one of the great guitarists of all time. I listen to his stuff now. It's nearly 70 years old. Yeah. It's great. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Now, 
Um, I'll, I'll I'll start wrapping up here because we've we've gone long again. But um, okay. you you worked with Andy Johns, who uh, mm. passed away ah, not yes. so long ago. Love yeah. Andy. I mean, he he just made some great great. great yeah, just just talk to me a little bit about him and working with him and and what made him such a genius in the studio. Uh, and then I just want to f- finish that with free live. Uh, and mm. but let's just start with Andy first. I mean, he really yeah. had a knack to get the best out of every band he worked with. He was. Hang on, woman. Give me twenty seconds. At this point, Simon had to step away for a second, but we get right back into it. Here is part two with Simon Kirk. Oh, Andy. Well, Andy. The thing about Andy was he had a, an amazing combination of talent. And enthusiasm. He was like uh, he was like a like a big kid. I mean, he was so enthusiastic. When he liked something and got behind something, he really gave it such a tremendous boost. And I remember particularly um, the follow-up album uh, after Fire and Water. Uh, it was Highway, and it wasn't. You know, we won't go there, but it it didn't do well, and we were all a bit disappointed. But because uh, we had to follow up all right now, so that was a huge task. But Andy was always so enthusiastic about our songs and about our playing, and he would go, "That's so good, guys! That was so good." Even when we were maybe a little down or despondent that the session wasn't going very well, he was, and I'll never forget him. He was just so positive, and um, yeah, he was a great guy and a great engineer. Yeah, he he really was. And what was the other question? Sorry. Well, I'll just finish oh, with with this because I, I I was talking to the former manager of Guns and Roses just before our call, friendly chat, and I said, "Hey, I got to get off the phone. I'm going to talk to Simon Kirk." And he said, "Oh my God, Free Live is mm. one of my <laughs> favorite albums ever." And please mm. ask him about the version of Mr. Big. It is the <laughs> so just just for for <laughs> for. Alan Niven's own edification and mine. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about Free Live because it is it is a great live record and 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 that Mr. Big version that Mr. he's Big, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, first thing first, it, it was recorded in two venues, one in the south of England, one in the north. Um, and uh, Croydon uh, is a suburb of London, South London. We did a couple, I believe, one show there. And we recorded one show up in uh, Newcastle at the Mayfair Ballroom. And Free was really at its peak uh, during those uh, that time. We were really, wherever we went, we sold out. There were lines around the block. It really was an incredible time for, for the band. And this album captured, captured the essence of, of, of the band so well. There was no overdubs. There was no. There was nothing. I mean, it was just um, what was recorded was was what you heard. You know, when you put the needle on the vinyl. And Mr. Big uh, was recorded in Newcastle. And the thing about being up in Newcastle in the north of England, Free was a huge band up there. There was something about. Well, Paul was from the, that area. He was from Middlesbrough, so you know he was a local boy. And and. And and the northeast of England embraced free uh, before any other uh, areas in, in England. So when we went to Newcastle to record there, the the response was staggering. In fact, we were worried at one point 
that the balcony, we could see the balcony swaying under the weight of the kids jumping up and down. We thought, oh my God, you know, it's going to collapse. And there was about 2,000 kids in this theater. So it was, that, that whole performance was a little fraught uh, with anxiety. Uh, it was one of the first shows where we, we um, presented All Right Now. And in fact, I played different drums on that version than I did uh, uh, on the recorded version. We hadn't, I hadn't quite um, honed it you know, to, to where it would eventually become. But anyway, Mr. Big was recorded, I believe, in Croydon. And Mr. Big, the thing about Mr. Big was it was really a very, very simple song um, written by Paul and Andy, Andy Fraser. And, and the majority of the, uh, the song was only over two chords, E major to D major and back up to E major. That's all it was. But it's what Andy Fraser did on that bass around those two chords in, in solo that was just stunning. And, and I mean, I hear it occasionally. I don't really listen to three. Uh, I don't go out of my way to listen to it. But I, I heard it recently and I was just blown away. This kid, and this was what, 1970, I think Andy was just 19, maybe 18, but he was a genius. He really was a genius yeah. on bass. Um, we all were. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I say that as a bold statement. I can't include myself in that because I, I was a good drummer. I was still finding my feet. But, you, you know, Paul Kossoff was an incredible guitar player. Paul Rogers was an incredible singer, and Annie Fraser was an incredible bass player. And, and, you know, we were all very, very young. And it was just an astounding band. But we, we just we flew too close to the sun, and we burned out very quickly. Yeah, which, which is uh, unfortunate, but it gave us bad company. So at the same time mm. as being unfortunate, it is exceptionally very fortunate. So, <laughs> so you know. Uh, uh, let me come back to that one, Mitch. Yes, I think I understand that. Yes, <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yes, so there you go. Uh, the new album, of course, is all because of you. Uh, another great uh, 40 minutes. Uh, thank you. Thank you so for the first interview. Thank you for the second interview. I did just, enjoy it. Yeah, it, it's, it's great. And, and, of course, thank you for all that work you do in the community. Um, that's, that's just very important. And, uh, you know, thank you. And, thank you. Uh, there right, we go. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye, Mitch. Thanks Cheers. again. Bye. And there you have it, folks, my second interview with Bad Company drummer Simon Kirk. His new solo album is all because of you. Please do yourself a favor and check that out. And while you're checking stuff out, yes, you know how this ends. Check me out on Twitter at, that's right, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, or as I like to say, Mitch LaFon. And with that, I bid you a fond farewell, arrivederci, au revoir, bonsoir, and whatever else you can think of. Uh, there you go. Bye for now. <laughs>